0: Well, I heard the story this week about the two quarterbacks that will be playing tonight, uh, Peyton Manning and Cam Newton, and part of the pregame festivities is they go to heaven and they have a visit with God. And uh, God is trying to decide who is going to sit next to him by asking them some questions. And he starts by asking Peyton Manning, what do you believe? And Peyton thinks long and hard and he looks God in the eye. And he says, I believe in hard work, I believe in staying true to my family and friends, I believe in giving. God says, those are all good things. What else do you believe? He says, I believe that passion and discipline and goodness and honor are fundamentals of life and I've always tried to be a true sportsman both on and off the field. God is really moved by Peyton's uh, sincerity and goodness and he offers him a seat at his right hand. Finally, God turns to Cam Newton. Arguably one of the best young quarterbacks in the game today, and he says, and you, Cam, what do you believe? And Cam says, I believe you're in my seat. <laughs> Just a little Super Bowl humor to get us going to. Anyhow, we're, let's talk about today. Today is the final message in this series that we've been doing called About Face, and we're talking about how we can change some things in our life so that we can have a clear conscience before God. And we've been saying over the last uh, five weeks that some of these issues are really pretty deep issues in our life, things that we may want to change, like mending broken relationships and overcoming addictions and getting rid of shame and guilt that keeps us bound to the past, and even stopping being a self-centered person. But here's the reality. Even when we discover the path toward change, it doesn't always mean that we take the path. Sometimes, actually many times, we choose to stay on our own course. And that can be a dangerous and deadly uh, plan of action. According to the Bible, it leads us toward destruction. So in today's message, we're going to learn some important facts that we can, how we can have a clear and free conscience before God and other people. And we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5, six steps of obedience that we can follow to help keep our conscience clear. We're going to also share in Holy Communion today, Uh, but before we do all that, let's bow in prayer together, shall we? Holy God, so fill us with your steadfast love today that our hearts and our minds will be surrounded with your truth. Build us up as we worship you and nurture our faith so that we may bear good fruit for the kingdom of God. And it's by the authority and the power of Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. It was the American poet, Ogden Nash, who wrote, the only way to have happiness on this earth is to have a clear conscience or none at all. If we don't have a clear conscience, we're not going to be very happy. Our theme verse for this whole series has been the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, and I'd like for you to read it along with me again today. The purpose of my instruction is that all believers would be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, and genuine faith. That's what it's all about. What I'd like to emphasize today is that a clear conscience gives us that kind of faith. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.12, we can say with confidence and a clear conscience that we have lived with a God-given holiness and sincerity in all of our dealings. See, a good conscience is also spoken of in 1 Peter chapter 3, and it's associated with the fact that we are good witnesses. Peter says that if someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to explain it. But do this in a gentle and respectful way. Keep your conscience clear then if people speak against you, they will be ashamed when they see what a good life you live because you belong to Christ. So a good conscience is a powerful thing. There are really two lies that Satan tells us. The first lie is that if we commit just one sin, whether that's a big sin or a little sin, it really doesn't matter. And the second lie is, now that we've messed up, might as well just go ahead and mess up our life good. In other words, sin some more. You see, a defiled conscience causes us to do things that continue to defile us. And that's why it's very important for us to keep our conscience clear. Because when we keep it clear, we want to stay within the moral lines and we'll be very aware when we step over those lines. Our scripture today is found in the New Testament book of Ephesians and we're going to talk about the topic of sin because it is sin that defiles our conscience. And above all, we want to keep our conscience clear. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says, Imitate God, therefore, in everything you do, because you are his dear children. I want to stop there just for a moment because the Apostle Paul uses the word here, imitate or mimic. We are to become imitators of God as his children. And the idea is that we belong to God and it's our Heavenly Father. He is our Heavenly Father. And because we are partakers of God's nature, we have the DNA of our heavenly father in us so there should be something within us that is like god and we ought to be able to imitate him now of course theologians make a distinction between the different attributes of god there are some things that are called non-communicable these are attributes that belong only to god and can never possibly belong to us and these are things like god is everywhere present god is all-powerful god is all-knowing But there are other attributes that God can communicate to us, and the Apostle Paul lists a few of them that are available to us as we follow the example of our loving God. And the first characteristic of being like God is to be a forgiving person, because God in Christ forgave us. Ephesians 5, verse 2, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. So this is one of the characteristics um, of this kind of love. It is for a forgiving love. You'll notice, for example, in the last verses of chapter four, verses 31, 32. It says, "Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger and harsh words and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you." Now, in Luke's Gospel, the sixth chapter, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees, and he's speaking to his disciples, and he makes something very clear. He says that we should be like our Heavenly Father. He says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you. Why would we do that? Because our Heavenly Father blesses those who are his and sometimes even those who aren't. The Bible says he sends rain on the just and the unjust. So in light of that, if we want to be God-like, we need to even be praying for and loving our enemies because that's the way in which we demonstrate the love of God. God's love is, first of all, a forgiving kind of love. Now, the second uh, characteristic of being like God is to demonstrate sacrificial love. Ephesians 2 tells us that Jesus gave himself up for us and he became a sin offering. He became the offering that God accepted so that our sins could be forgiven. So how can we be godly? How can we imitate God? Well, first of all, we strive for walking in love. But there's more to the text here and it relates specifically to a defiled conscience and how to walk with a pure conscience and here's what Paul says in verse 8. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of light, for this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. This is the second way in which we can be like God. God is light, and therefore, the text of Scripture encourages us to walk in the light, even as God is in the light. Now we must understand that what the Apostle Paul is talking about here is moral issues. And what he directly implies is that if we're not walking in the light, we are walking in moral and spiritual darkness. So with that, let's go back to the text and the context in which Paul invites us to walk in the light which he says is really walking in holiness because God is holy, so we are to be holy. The scripture is very clear. It says we are to be like God. Now let's pick up with verse 3. Let there be no sexual immorality, impurity, or greed among you. Such sins have no place among God's people. Obscene stories, foolish talk, and coarse jokes, these are not for you instead let there be thankfulness to God, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things that these people do. Now this is really an interesting list that Paul gives us, and as I reread that Recently, I thought, you know, it's interesting that he mentions greed in this list. But I believe that he does that so that, because greed is at the root of so many other problems. Greed is wanting what we don't have. It's wanting something that's not ours. And in a sense, all sin, or a lot of sin, has its roots in greed. And what the Apostle Paul does here is he lists things that are improper for Christians, And I think that you understand the meaning of the word immorality as well as impurity, but I want to add a word about what he says regarding foolish talk and crude joking. Clearly God does not mind if we have a sense of humor, because I think God has a sense of humor. That's why he instilled that in us. But what Paul's talking about here is dirty jokes. He's talking about low kinds of humor. It's the kind of humor that sometimes makes fun of sin. That would be one way to identify the kind of crude stories and the foolish talk that he's talking about here. But that being said, he said, now let's continue to read the text because it becomes even more serious. Notice in verse 5, it says, you can be sure that no immoral, impure, or greedy person will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. For a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world. Now when Paul says we can be sure of something, We know that he's talking about something that's pretty important because he doesn't want us to miss this. We can be sure. It's an interesting phrase. We may not know whether the Tigers will make the playoff next year or if the Cubs will ever win another World Series. There are a lot of things in life that we cannot be sure of, but we can be sure of this. In Paul's words, you can be sure that no immoral person, no impure person, no greedy person will inherit the kingdom. There are a couple of ways that we can interpret the idea of not inheriting the kingdom. Some people believe that it means that we will be denied the opportunity to have any kind of significant role when we get to heaven. We may get there, but we won't really inherit it. We'll not enjoy the benefits of it. That's the most charitable way that we can interpret this. Others strongly insist that what Paul means here is that we will not even enter the kingdom. In other words, we'll be lost forever. We'll not inherit the kingdom, we'll not be in heaven, we'll be lost for all of eternity if we think that we can practice these things, if we can make them part of our lifestyle, and at the same time, get to heaven. So what he's saying here is this is pretty serious stuff. And if these things are part of our lifestyle, and if we say, well, that's just who I am, If we're practicing immorality and impurity and all those things become part of our life and we don't deal with it and we don't fight it because we're simply going along with it, the text of scripture says be very careful because there will not be an inheritance for us in the kingdom. Now if we think that this language is kind of upfront and serious, it is. But keep keep reading. Paul says in verse 6, don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins for the anger of God will fall on those who disobey him." In other words, don't be deceived by a bunch of empty words. In the the book, The Making of an Atheist, which is subtitled, How Immorality Leads to Unbelief, the writer concludes, after a great deal of research, that the reason why so many young people today who go to college lose their faith is not because of the intellectual arguments, He says those arguments aren't that strong, and the arguments for Christianity are compelling. But he says they lose their faith because they fall into the sin of immorality, and then they don't know what to do with that guilt. They don't know what to do with their situation, so they go back, and and so it seems like going back to purity is an impossibility. They don't know where to park the guilt. So what they decide to do is plunge even more headlong into that lifestyle. They build their whole theology around it, and they begin to say, well, I just don't even believe the Bible anymore. I don't want to go to church anymore. They begin to justify it and begin to live in a bubble where nothing that can be said to them can dissuade them of the fact that they're living wrongly. But the Bible says don't be fooled by those who try to excuse those sins. See, we live in a culture today that is willingly deceived by a lot of empty words. Theo Hudson, who's a British journalist, once said, in order for a sexual revolution to be complete, you need three things. First of all, that which was condemned has to be celebrated. You have to celebrate it. And then that which was at one time celebrated, such as traditional marriage, must now be condemned. And those who refuse to celebrate the revolution, now they must be condemned. And he goes on to say that that explains a lot of life today. He says, I never really understood until recently that in a purely secular culture, where sexuality becomes in effect the controlling reality, the most important thing is not one form of marriage over another, but it is sexual freedom. And sexual freedom becomes the dominant cultural value. But to make that happen, all morality must be dragged down. Anything noble needs to meet the lowest common denominator because no one's preference should be in any way better than another. So everyone is together and those who refuse to celebrate need to be condemned. Paul says don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins. We can be sure of this, the anger of God will fall on those who disobey him. So there are really two ways in which we can be like God. We can walk in love. We can walk in light. And now the Apostle Paul does, uh, what he does is talk about a conversation that I'd like for you to look at in the text. He says in verses 7 and 8, Don't participate in the things that these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have the light of the Lord. So live as people of the light. It's interesting when you look at the whole Bible, back in the book of Isaiah, the Bible says the people walked in darkness. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 4, quotes that passage from Isaiah, but he changes it a little bit and he says, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And then here in Ephesians, we find the Apostle Paul saying that the people are full of darkness. They are darkness personified. So what Paul's is saying is the Lord has given you light. Now you're the light. They are the darkness. You're the light of the Lord. Walk as children of the light. Notice verses 9 through 14. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. Carefully determine what pleases the Lord. Take no part in the worthless deeds of evil and darkness. Instead, expose them. It is shameful even to talk about the things that ungodly people do in secret. But their evil intentions will be exposed when the light shines on them, for the light makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. Now what he's saying is that the works of darkness don't produce fruit, because no fruit grows in the dark, at least no fruit that God accepts or takes delight in, but rather when we walk in the light, Now our works can be pleasing to God, and in pleasing God, there will be fruit that is produced by our our life. In other words, the Apostle Paul is talking about a transformed life. If you're here today and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Bible says God wants to move us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his Son, the kingdom of light. That's what happens when we commit our lives to Jesus Christ. So if you're still walking in the darkness, you may never have really been transformed by God. Because if you're transformed by God, a change takes place. When we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior, an about-face takes place. Our lives are turned in a new direction. You may ask, well, how does all this relate to keeping our conscience pure? Well, there is a connection. You see, it is these kinds of sins that we've been talking about that constitute the darkness in our world. And it's walking in darkness that pollutes the conscience because when we think of a clear conscience, we think of purity. We need to think of having been forgiven and cleansed by God and living in fellowship with God, and that's the way we keep our conscience clear. Well, before we leave Ephesians 5, there's a third way that the Apostle Paul uh, would want us to say that we are like God. And he says it in verses 15 through 20 so be careful how you live don't live like fools but like those who are wise make the most of every opportunity in these evil days don't act thoughtlessly but understand what the Lord wants you to do don't be drunk with wine because that will ruin your life instead be filled with the Holy Spirit singing Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs among yourselves and making music to the Lord in your hearts, and give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now in the original Greek, what that is implying, what the encouragement here is, for us to redeem the time that we have. And I like that imagery. You know, every day, each of us has 1,440 minutes. And once those minutes are spent, we can never get them back. We can spend them in many different ways but once they're gone, they're gone forever, and a new day starts. And so what Paul's saying here is we need to learn how to use them wisely. We need to know how to redeem the time that we have. We have to carve out the time from our other commitments, out of our cluttered lives that some of us lead, out of our pressures that await us when we get to the office out of the long list of things that we have to do this week we have to carve out time we have to redeem the time because the days are evil and we are to be like God and walk in wisdom we have to carve out time for God so what do we need to do to have a clear conscience well let me just give you six quick steps to obedience and ultimately all that we do is done because of Jesus God doesn't ask us to do anything that Jesus has not already done for us. So walking in the light really involves constantly looking to Jesus to be in us what we are not. It's always a matter of faith. First of all, begin each day in the light. One of the things that we can all do is pray. Maybe before we even get out of bed in the morning, take a moment and give your day to God. You might say something like, God, today glorify yourself in my life even if it's at my expense, and please show me if there's any sin that I need to confess, any darkness between me and you that needs to be taken care of before I begin this day. Beginning each day in the light, and you will be surprised how positively your life will be impacted. Secondly, recognize the darkness. You know, if you're watching a movie or a television show, and there's really darkness that's defiling your conscience, stop it. Walk away. Get away from it. Recognize it. If you're a believer, know that God wants to help you to retrain your conscience so that you can pick up on the darkness almost immediately, rather than immersing yourself in that darkness. But we have to recognize it, and by God's grace, we need to turn away from it. The more we are alert to the fact that the Holy Spirit of God is grieved when we allow darkness into our life, the more willing we'll be to do something about it. Third, we need to confess our sins immediately. I'm talking mostly to Christ followers, but there are many people who just allow sins to build up, to stack up. Come to church on a Sunday morning and we think about confessing our sins, but then, you know, Don't make much of an effort to do that because our mind, something in the back of our mind is saying, well, you know, I've blown it so badly. There's really no sense of trying to come back to God. I'm just going to continue to live the way I'm living. Our defiled conscience continues to be defiled. It's important for us to confess our sins immediately when we recognize the darkness. Don't wait. The point is that we should live open before God continually confessing the darkness that comes into our mind and our heart and our spirit so that we can walk in fellowship with God. Fourth, commit yourself completely to God. Here I'm thinking of the book of James where it says, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. For your loyalty is divided between God and the world. Let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. Think about this. What is the point of entry in your life where the darkness gets in? What is the point of entry in your life where the darkness easily creeps in? We need to do whatever we need to do to no longer walk in the darkness and keep stumbling around in the same sin. Do whatever we need to do, pay whatever price we need to pay so that we might be submitted to God. Here's number five. Resist the darkness triumphantly. James says, humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And I believe that if we do resist him, we need to stand on Scripture, and that's why it's important for us to know the Word of God. To stand on scripture, even in the midst of temptation and struggles, even when we're feeling overwhelmed, we keep our mind on God and keep surrendering our life to him. And then six, keep on worshiping. I would suggest to you that it may be more important for us to worship God than to be obsessed with how to overcome our sins, because in the process of worshiping God, sin begins to lose its power. Learn to be a worshiper. Direct your attention away from your own issues and struggles uh, to, to give glory to God and live that way. And so you'll discover that that begins to change your mind and heart. It will change the way you process reality. It will help you access the power of God in your life as we worship. So that's what we need to do to keep our conscience clear. As a person thinks in their heart, the Bible says, so they are. Guard your heart, for out of it comes the issues of life. Don't let your conscience be darkened by sin. Well, I began this message by saying that Satan tells us two lies. The first one is that one little sin doesn't matter. second one, if you've already committed sin, you might as well just enjoy yourself and continue doing it. So we're defiled, and that keeps on defiling us. May I encourage you to realize instead that God in Christ has already won the victory over sin and over Satan and God works in our hearts. We do, not, we do not need to ever say, I have to be this way. I have to just let this keep defiling me because the grace of God is greater than any sin in our life. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world, the scripture says. So if you're here today and you've never received Jesus Christ as your savior, if you're still walking in that darkness, know that if you put your faith in Jesus and receive his love and grace, he will enable you to be forgiven, to be reconciled to God, and you will begin that journey of walking in the light. God can deal with your past. God can delete all the guilt and shame out of your past. And he can set you on a different course. And from your conscience will then come purity, and love, and sincere faith. Let's pray. God, we pray that you might help these thoughts to ring true in the lives of all those who have listened to you today. We thank you that you stand ready to help us in the depths of our need. May there be no one here who says that their sin is too great to be forgiven. We pray today that we might see that your grace is greater than our sin. We thank you that before the throne of God, Jesus represents us, and he's greater than Satan, he's greater than our sin. Father, we pray that you'll help all of us to be obedient to what we've heard. Grant us the grace to turn away from the darkness into the light, the light that cleanses us and keeps us clean. Do that for us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.